I am one of those people, and there's a lot of those people, who have been told my whole life, oh, you have a great voice for <laughs> radio or whatever. And that's that's a very backhanded compliment. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to like a face for anything. <laughs> but, you know, I love using my voice. And that is one of the reasons that I've loved creating Risk. Mm-hmm. Like when I created Risk, it was this reminder of, oh, yeah, when you were in the sixth grade, you were obsessed with making recordings with a Radio Shack tape recorder of, you know, like little radio dramas mm-hmm. and skits and songs and pranks and whatnot. I used to love like records like Free to Be You and Me or stuff that would have like or Monty Python's records where people would use their voices. And I I grew up loving Bob Dylan as well. So I was very used to like this idea of, oh, the way you use your voice, it can be really transformative. Sort of a medium where you have no other senses to depend on. Yes. So, you know, when I created Risk, I, I realized, oh... Since I had never really developed as a writer, because staring at a blank page is so alienating and (laughs) weird to me, I always felt like, oh, I have stories to tell. But it wasn't until I started working with my voice. So now, literally, if I have to work on a story, I will first just improvise the damn thing into a recording device, then listen back and start transcribing the parts I like, and then start editing that text. Because there's something about using your vocal cords to express the the emotion and the speed, the pace, the pitch, all of that, that to me is a very essential part of the writing. And I think a lot of writers do, like A.J. Jacobs is one of the people in the Risk book. He said to me, oh yeah, I speak all my stuff, you know, because when I'm working on it, because I really like to go for a conversational style. And I think that's becoming more and more popular these days. I recorded half of the stories that in the Risk book. Written by other people. Yes. Yeah. The Risk book is going to be 37 stories, most of which have been on the Risk podcast, and maybe five or so that have never been heard anywhere before, plus interviews with the storytellers. So it's some of our greatest, most classic stories, and it's a really goddamn fascinating book because it really does capture what the podcast does, Mm. which is some of the stories are absolutely terrifying. Like stuff happens where you're like, I cannot believe this person lived through this. And then other stories are hilarious, you know, just like really, really funny laugh out loud stuff. And then others literally like I have cried reading some (laughs) of these stories in the book, even though I'm so familiar with them already. So you feel like it translates well to written text? It's weird that it translates (laughs) so well. In fact, there were like I was unsure of the whole process at first. And then we transcribed one of the stories and I read through the transcription and, and the, you know, the editor starts working on it and we start working mm-hmm. on it. And then we run it by the storyteller themselves and they start working. So there's a lot of tweaking to make it read more like prose on a page to, to, to make it presentable. Mm-hmm. You know, you cut out all the ums and whatever else. The first story that we transcribed and I read, I, I said to myself, oh, I'm noticing little nuances that I hadn't even noticed in the original presentation because when you put something on a page, 
then all of a sudden the reader's mind, we're just trained as readers to understand that subtext yeah. is a thing that exists. And you can go back and reread in ways oh, that yeah. you can't do. Like you can see how, oh, there's stuff happening underneath the surface in this story that might not be so apparent when you're just listening to someone say it yeah. out loud. Yeah, the first story I read, I was like, whoa, this is just as compelling as hearing it on the podcast, but in a slightly new, weird way. So I knew it was going to work right from then. Now, of course, it's a case-by-case -case basis. Part of the project of narrowing down 37 stories was there are some stories that it's like, oh, actually, this doesn't translate as well. There was one case in which the the author of the story said, you know what, can I really rewrite this? Because it was Melanie Hamlet. The way that she, she told the story of being in an abusive relationship, hmm. a very dangerous abusive relationship where she was raped and she was afraid of physical harm you know that that, that kind of situation yeah. and it's a long story it was about an hour long on the podcast and she really goes into the nitty-gritty the mixed feelings you know all the sorts of things where people are like well why didn't she just leave or you know well he sounds like a monster she yeah. really addresses all that like the the little nuances that you might not think of at first but that become really real in people's lives but the way that she uses her voice when she talks is so musical. She laughs a lot. She she sings through some stuff practically, and I'm very similar to that. It maybe takes a little bit of the pressure off of telling such a harrowing oh, story. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were literally some women who wrote in, oh, I'm offended that mm. she laughs so much during yeah. her story. And... You know, what we always say is this is a person yeah. sharing their life experience yeah. from their own psyche about how they really feel and think about it. And, you know, we're, we're just letting a person express themselves how they feel about what they actually live through. You want to create an entertaining product. And if you're dealing with these really difficult situations, you know, you do want to make them funny or you do want to make them engaging. Have people called storytellers out before for being too glib about these topics? Oh, people, you know, it's interesting because it hasn't been so much the case recently. It's kind of fascinating that it's kind of tapered off. But for the previous two years, I wonder what it is. I wonder why it has tapered off. But for the previous two years. What, what happened two years ago? Yeah, I think, I, think, <laughs> I think that might be a little bit of it. You know what I mean? I, th I think that literally what might have happened is that people who are on the left, who are extremely concerned about political correctness, I think might have like thought, Oh, we've got bigger fish to fry. Like, I, I, I watched that happen when we went from Clinton to Bush. I watched how during the Clinton years, political correctness really started revving up its engines. But this is, it's two-pronged. It's one, you know, people having other things to worry about in this constant news cycle. So everybody's sort of taking their eye off of whatever ball they were focused on before. And also, I almost hate to say this, but the discourse has been so lowered. <laughs> Yeah. In the country. Yeah. That pe people are just not about a lot of things. People are just not as easily offended as they were because everything is so horrible all the time now. Yeah. Well, and, and, and th there's a third prong to it. And that is, I think that people might be, you know, one of the things that people get on risk is they get to hear people speaking with incredible frankness about their 
you know, speaking the way that they would ordinarily speak to close friends or maybe to a therapist. And you can you can sense that when you're listening to it. You, you, you can hear, oh, this person is being really real. And, oh, yeah, I get that uh, that person might have worded that a little differently if they were on MSNBC right now or PBS or something like that. I think that people have a sense that oh, this is refreshing that a person is simply stating their truth without worrying about it fitting into, you know, this or that political agenda. We had Catherine Burns of The Moth on the show. And, yeah. and they've and I say this in the best way possible, but they, they've almost created this this industry around it. And they have this whole process and they will take you through the storytelling process step after step and refine the story. I mean, I assume that you don't have quite that machine in place for risk. I would say we have that much and more. Really? Yeah. <laughs> It's a case-by-case basis because what we do with risk is we say, hey, St. Louis or hey, Madison, Wisconsin or hey, you know, Dallas, Texas, we're coming to town. And risk is nowhere near the size of the moth. Mm -hmm. So if the moth wants to come to town, they can just bring their big guns or whatever. If risk is coming to St. Louis, we need to get storytellers from St. Louis. So we rely mostly on people who listen to and love the show. So we're mostly saying, hey, person who has literally never stepped foot on a stage Mm. before, how about telling us about your rape? And that person... (laughs) It's really, it's an intense thing. That person will need weeks of... Getting to know us, me and the story coaches, running a first version by us, getting notes, running a second version by us, and many times a third and fourth version by us. And we have to try to assess during that period of time, is this person... Does this person have so much PTSD yeah. or whatever it might be that maybe it would be a good idea that they tell this a couple of years from now? Are they now mentally equipped now? to be right, able to exactly. do this? And are they getting like that they have to let their personality really shine? Or yeah. Do we think this person is going to be able to step out on stage and like not speak monotone and be? So, yeah, we do work with people at the same time. I don't want to step on toes here. But I think when I say we do that much and more, I think there's a big difference between risk and the and the moth in that we desperately try to preserve that the person is not writing and memorizing. We desperately try to preserve that the we're always telling people, yeah, look. If you want to bring notes up on stage, if, if having a little like list of like key phrases is going to help you like as a crutch, help you like be in the moment more and just like improvise and ad lib a little bit so that you know if you go way too far afield, you can look down and be like, oh yeah, anyway, about moving to Canada. The moth is like absolutely no notes, but they're very, very big on a person handing in a written draft mm-hmm. and then memorizing it. We work on the story, but we do not want it memorized. We want, if you, we want you to start crying if you have to start crying or to burst out in hysterical laughter if, or to like say, oh, you know, something's occurring to me right now that is only occurring to me right now because I'm telling it live on stage. We want some of that raw realness to show through at the same time that we want to really work with a person on their story so that they, so that we've poked and prodded them enough to know that they're really uncovering some stuff. So it's a fine balance. It's a fine balance. I would say this might be, sound surprising. 
But it's harder to work with professionals. Oh, sure. You've got to break them out of their habits. Yeah. Yeah. In New York and Los Angeles. And, 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 you know, I used to say that about stand-up comedians. I used to say, oh, stand-up comedians are the worst because they come and they're like, this might be the third show they've done that night. They have no, like, respect for the fact that this is risk. This is, they just think, here's a storytelling show. You know what I mean? Like, risk prides itself on not being all the other storytelling shows. We pride ourselves on, no, 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 no. People have talked about shit-eating and attempting murder and cannibalism on this show. Like, this show is where people really say stuff that they would not say elsewhere. I'll give a perfect example. Trevor Noah came to do okay. the show yeah, sure. in, it was a long time ago. Pre-Daily Show? Yeah, long yeah. pre. It was one of, if not his first, trip to New York City. Wow. And he was a great stand-up comedian sure. already. But he came to do the show, and we told him, look, this is a really real, raw, where people like, bear it all kind of show. So he ran a story by us, and it was kind of funny, and I was like, okay, whatever. He's sitting backstage, and he's listening to the show. And it's clearly dawning on him, yeah. like, you weren't you kidding. You weren't joking. <laughs> People really do talk about real, real stuff here. So he said, can I change my story and just improvise something? He said, I, I think I've got something that would really, really bear my soul. And I said, sure. And so he told the story about his um, mother. His He loves his mother. His mm. mother was a very key person in his life and his stepdad shot her in the head it was you know an abusive relationship situation he told that story just totally improvised and it was amazing hmm. so like when i say stand-up comedians you know for yeah. a long time i felt like they were the worst of course there's always exceptions to the rules there are people who are like wait a minute i've heard some things about this show i really want to try to bring it so let me work with you but now there's a new thing that's happened which is that Risk has been around for nine years now. And so the storytelling scene itself has kind of aged a little bit. So now it's practiced storytellers who are getting a little hard to work with. So I will often write a person like a novel's worth yeah. of notes, like really poking and prodding for them to to dig deeper. And I've been through this myself. I'll do TV shows or during my job, I'll, I'll, I'll moderate panels. And I've been doing it for a long time. And, you know, they, they'll bring in a media training person and it's excruciating. It hurts. It hurts to watch yourself and it hurts to get these critiques. Like, I completely understand where people are coming from. Is there a diplomatic way to, to do that where it's, I accept and respect what you're doing. I know you're good at your job, but here's a way that we could better tailor what you do for what we do yeah and you know what it is it's me usually saying you know what i teach storytelling i run a storytelling school and i run this podcast for nine years when i work on a story i run over it to get notes from at least one of our story coaches here i just handed in a story to amazon for another project risk is working on and they wanted me to take my coming out of the closet story to, to take it from, oh, about five. Well, it was about a 10 minute story and they wanted me to turn it into an hour long story. And I was like, wow, that's going to be daunting. But I knew from being a story coach, I was like, yeah, that's going to be daunting. That's going to really pull a lot of shit out of me. 
But it's in there. I know that if you take a story that you've told a million times and then have a smart, wise person who knows a lot about stories just poking at it and saying, nah, I want to know more about your yeah. mother. Let's go into a whole <laughs> thing here about your mom and then come back to the main plot, you know, that kind of thing. That can be profound. Another thing is when I was 37 years old, I took my first improv class, comedy improv class. This is well after the state. Well after the state. At the time, I felt like, this is kind of embarrassing that I'm in a class with all these 21-year-old kids, and here I am, 37, and I've already been on national television <laughs> on a legendary sketch comedy show. But it was so, so useful. There is no age at which you can't continue workshopping I your don't craft. think it's the age thing, though. Like, I can't, again, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I assume that a certain percentage of them, even though they were young, must have recognized you from the show. Yeah. How do you get past that? How do you just become a, another regular person <gasps> in a level one improv? Class? Well, I'll tell you, it was my own... <laughs> I can't say humility. I would say it's my own insecurity. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I have such an inner critic that, you know, at time, I was just talking to my therapist about this yesterday. I'm always yelling at about my inner critic and saying, oh, it's ultimately the voice of my mom and I hate that and yada, yada, yada. But then I was talking to my therapist yesterday and saying, yeah, but there's always another side to the story, isn't there? <laughs> like, there are plenty of incidences in which my inner critic kept me on track <laughs> and and that was it like you know improv classes like sitting down and and saying yeah i'm experienced and people know who i am and you know i might look like an idiot coming in here like starting something new that i should already know and everything but yeah that kind of helped me i think be, some yeah. of the humility that there, comes there was out no of that. ego that you had to contend with you didn't think you were better than anyone starting out yeah i think you know like if you look at my years in the state, my lack of ego was my most hindering thing because that was an incredibly competitive yeah. group. Uh, you know, everyone with, it was with, a team. With my understanding, no lack of egos. Yeah, it was a team of rivals, basically, and everyone was yeah. competing to get the roles and everything. However, that lack of ego has probably been hugely helpful for the work that I do now of being able to, like, really dig into myself and admit my flaws and kind of examine myself in front of the world in stories is something that people find really cathartic and illuminating, you know? I have this conversation a lot with creative types because obviously they tend toward depression, right? I mean, yeah. that's pretty common. Yes. I wonder how much of not being happy or satisfied with yourself is a positive versus a negative. I mean, there's a, there's a sense that it really does drive you forward, right? If you're never happy with what right. you you've done in the past, then you'll be compelled to create some more. Now, obviously, if you go too far on one side of that, it becomes a huge hindrance. You, yes. You know, anhedonia, you, you don't actually want to create anything. Yeah. Well, uh, Dylan once said, if you ever get to a place where, as an artist where you're like, well, I, there you go, I'm doing good. Yeah. Then you're done. Yeah. <laughs> might, might be Dylan in the past 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's true. He might <laughs> But you know what? Good, you know what? He deserves but he's it. Fucking, you know, like seventy something yeah, years absolutely. old. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. 
I think that that's absolutely true. The state ran mostly on fear, fear of, oh, the other guy's going to get one up on me, yep. you know, all that kind of stuff. Fear of being And there were like 20 of you. Yes, there were 11 of us. So we were always, and in college, we were regularly kicking people out. So everyone, it instilled this fear of, I might be the next one to be, you know, like survivors. It's like something. Machiavellian yeah. sketch comedy troupe. <laughs> yes. But I think that that fear ultimately. Like it, it, it did a, it, it was a service to yeah. us for many years because it kicked us in the butt and made us work our asses off for the longest time, for eight years. And then eventually it became too destructive and, and we started, you know, harming ourselves because of, I mean, harming ourselves as in the group began to break apart because of all that. It, it made you better within the, the context of the troupe and, and the show, but then everything ends and where, where does that leave you? Yeah. Well, me, where it left me, was in a pretty battered place because, you know, by that time I was 26 years old and had grown very, very accustomed to drinking a hell of a lot and smoking a lot of pot and had grown pretty, had, had acquired a lot of stage fright hmm. because I felt like, well, I felt like, oh, comedians must be pretty cutthroat. Comedians must be pretty roasty and mean-spirited with the, and a lot are, you know. I, I don't think that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I, I came out of the state kind of afraid because i had been in a womb really with, with you know the safety of numbers of being in this group and i i thought oh, i don't know how i'm gonna make it on my own another thing is i had just so much social anxiety about all the weirdnesses of me you know like i've always i've spent my entire life being like oh god i'm too gay i'm too kinky too raunchy too midwestern and polite too uh, serious and spiritual, too goofy and surreal and absurdist. So these are too many weird things yeah. that people that, that a casting director for Hollywood movies or you know network television would not get. So I'm fucked. So I for years I was trying to figure out how do I make myself whatever they want me to be. And it was finally, I, I, I did a show in 2008 called um, F Up, Five Characters Who Had F'd Up Their Careers. And I don't know if I told this story the last time I was on your podcast. It's but been a couple of years, so we'll <laughs> power through. I did this show and Michael Ian Black came to see it. And yeah. it was all crazy, kooky, sketch comedy kinds of characters. And he said, oh, God, I feel like the whole audience just wanted you to drop the mask drop the act be yourself this is this is michael maintaining that same sort of state spirit that he had before right <laughs> yeah i mean positive oh, yeah. but very critical yes 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 yeah but he spoke to me and i and i said oh that just feels too risky i i feel like you know all these weird things i am like an audience wouldn't get it you know the casting agents wouldn't get it so it feels too risky he said if it feels risky then you're probably on to something. You know, you're opening up, so they'll open up to you. So it was that very next week that I told a true story on stage for the first time. It was a story of how I prostituted or tried prostituting myself for the first time when I was 23 years old. And I was terrified. I thought, this is so goddamn risky. And while I was telling the story, I was thinking, oh, God, I sound so gay here, or I sound so Midwestern and polite here, or I sound so absurdist here. But then I realized, oh, shit, I keep, going past those places where I feel like I'm being too this or too that or too weird or whatever for people to understand. And they keep just leaning more and more forward because I'm being fucking honest with yeah. them. So that was the night I did that story. I told that hustling story at UCB theater one night 
just the week after Michael had said that to me and I walked away from that show and I was like, this is the thing. The whole idea for Risk occurred to me that very night. I thought, I've got to create a podcast around this. It's interesting because it sounds like in that context, it's relatively low risk in that, you know, it's a one night show. You're doing it in this like, I mean, the UCB theater is not a huge theater right. in front of a group of people. What ultimately were you afraid of? I was afraid for a few reasons. One... This was a story about trying to have sex for money, mm -hmm. right? And which is kind of, it feels like a, you know, I was raised very, very devoutly Catholic. So I still deal with all, and my mother was extremely puritanical. Even the word sex, she can't stand. I just have this natural knee jerk feeling of, oh, if I'm too honest to, yeah. with people about weird sexy shit I've done, uh, it will turn some people off. The next thing was when I saw the audience that night, it looked like it was mostly straight white fraternity boys. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is not the right audience. But no, it, it, yeah, I, I, I think when you say, you know, what were you mostly afraid of? I think most of what we're afraid of about, you know, sharing this kind of stuff is in our own head. And then another thing is, you know, we were talking earlier about how it hasn't happened so much late, but because Risk is a podcast, there are a lot of people on the internet who are hiding behind anonymous names who either in the comment section for on our site or in the comment section on iTunes or Twitter or Facebook. Like there's so many places, Reddit, where people are talking about risk and people will just like complain, complain, complain or say, uh, you know, they'll say stuff like, well, I can tell you stuff they've said about me. People will say stuff like this guy's voice and laugh and personality and way of expressing himself, etc., is so fucking annoying. I want to claw my eyes out. I have to keep pressing the fast forward button whenever I hear him. He just ruins the whole show. I love Risk, if only it could be without Kevin Allison. <laughs> When I first started reading those comments, I was uh, kind of devastated. And then eventually I was just like, oh, that's... That's the business. Yeah. <laughs> That's how this works. <laughs> Somebody who, who did go through the process of, of coming out with a religious family. I know you're from Cincinnati, which is not a particularly progressive place. You've been through that before. You've dealt with that with your family. Going up on stage and telling a, a personal story especially for somebody who, who you know, has been in a sense, been in show business for so long, doesn't feel like that much of a step beyond. Well, here's the interesting thing. The whole idea of risk is to continue working on those complexes. I go into my therapist and regularly tell him, Let's talk about this thing that I'd it like. It sounds to like, like based on everything it's, you've said, it, it sounds like you make your therapist job a lot easier. You almost you, you walk him <laughs> through the process. Oh, you totally. have your self actualizations, and he just sort of sits back and observes. Well, it's interesting because he he's a unique therapist. I got him because I knew he wouldn't pathologize me for being extremely kinky. Because uh, it was through there's an uh, something on the internet called Kink Aware mm -hmm. Professionals, where you can find people from all different professions who are kink friendly so i found someone who was he's like somewhat of a sex therapist but also he was thrilled to hear that i work with narrative so he's like yeah 
feel free anytime you want to literally bring in the script of a story and we can walk through it and stop and start and unpack. You workshop with your therapist? I do. I totally do. I totally do. It's not it's not <laughs> it's not workshopping as in, oh, I'm gonna jot that yeah. down. But it's workshopping in that we'll you know, I'll read him a few paragraphs and then he'll be like wait a minute, that's not how you told it to me before. Interesting. And then I'll start thinking, oh, yeah, I guess I'm kind of fudging here. You know, Do you feel like you subconsciously put a facade on or tweak things a little bit for the, the sake of narrative? We all do. Yeah. We, we, we do it for others. We even do it for ourselves. And we do it unconsciously yeah. a lot of the times. The main, you know, Matthew Dix always talks about four lies in storytelling. Compression, you know, when you take four days and yeah. turn them into one or take two characters and turn them into one uh the order you know oftentimes it's like well actually this happened three days later but i'll have it happen on the same day you know that kind of thing little things like that we bend and break the truth in order to make more emotional sense out of things because oftentimes the emotional sense that we make out of experiences that we've lived through the dead set honest accurate truth if you were to like try to go through it like a, a lawyer or, or a journalist might not support as well what our memory prefers to think you know they say that psychologists say if if you put three words three random words in front of a person that person's brain will automatically by default start creating a narrative for what those three words add up to what the, what they're getting yeah, at fill in the gaps yeah, exactly yeah. so we do that with our own memories where we're like okay this story i was just working on my mom took this toy from me and it was devastating that she took it from me and in the story i turn around and i see her drop it in the garbage and my therapist said to me i don't remember you saying you saw her drop it in the garbage mm. before and i said holy shit, maybe I'm making that up. <laughs> and I couldn't figure it out. Like, did I did that happen or did that yeah. not happen? And we arrived at, well, that's what it feels like happened. You know what I mean? That's the cherry on top of emotionally yeah. describing what that meant It was almost like me. a metaphorical yes. action. Yeah. It's overstated this idea that, that storytelling or songwriting or all these things are cathartic or forms of therapy. Obviously, it is to some degree. What do you ultimately get out of a therapist that you can't get on stage or through this form of storytelling you know what you can get you can be boring you can be boring in with a therapist are you able to do that yeah well you know that you, you seem like somebody who's on a lot oh yeah well that, that here's the funny thing we're sitting here yeah. recording a little podcast interview my therapist has literally said to me about my social anxiety around other gay men he said when you walk into a gay bar imagine that you've just been handed a microphone and are doing a podcast interview and then you'll turn on i i had this <laughs> i seriously i had i had a very similar conversation with a, a now ex-girlfriend where she was like i i don't understand how we can go to a party and you can be you know you won't talk to anybody you can be totally socially awkward but yeah you'll get up on stage i don't get it either i i like i i it's this whole like introvert extrovert thing i i don't i don't understand the pathology behind it yeah and it's made relationships difficult where you know you meet someone for the first time yes. you're totally on and then you go home or behind the scenes you're just maybe not necessarily the same person oh i think you know like when i think of my marriage uh, i was i was with someone for nine years and and when I think of my producer, JC, the two of us are best friends, I think, gosh, 
those people that I spend a lot of time with, they get to see me checked out, negative, doldrums, whining, you know, just all this stuff that, you know, I would normally not show on the podcast or up on stage. I've started doing check-ins for our Patreon members, which are, okay, here's a chance for me to turn on a microphone and just talk about whatever the fuck is occurring to me at that time. Like, you know, like this week it might be like Trump and children in cages, you know? And that's been pretty goddamn interesting because those are not nicely crafted narratives. You know, oftentimes I'll just be like, whoa, that that was pretty bleak of me just like complaining for 10 minutes. But but people write in and they're like, that was interestingly refreshing to hear you like not being happy and coming up with a nice little. And so the meaning of life is at the end. (laughs) Do you feel like one of those two people is more you than the other? Uh, That's a good question. I feel that, for example, what we're doing right now, this kind of conversation we're having now, or getting up on stage and telling a story, any of this kind of public persona sort Mm -hmm. of work that we do is I'm not depressed when I'm doing this. You know, like I feel like, like there's something... There's something about expressing yourself in a way where you feel like, well, this might matter to someone. It's interesting, though, when when something becomes performative, can it also be really brutally honest? Yeah, I think that it can. I think that it can. And I think you walk a real, you know, Philip LePate, the the writer who writes about personal essays, talks about Mm -hmm. this all the time, about walking the line between self-indulgence and self-deprecation you know like it's very very easy to fall into to lean too much to one way or or another and that really is what the storyteller is striving for is trying to be as honest as possible but understanding that in order to communicate in order to be fully and three-dimensionally understood that you're gonna oomph things up a little in places you're gonna use your voice with a little bit more drama and performance than you might if you were just talking to a friend it's just a line that you walk and you can hear it here's the thing that i sometimes do i'll tell a story and i'll put it on the podcast and i'll be like i'll listen to it you know a year or two later and be like jesus that was kind of false i was kind of not telling the truth right there or it didn't occur to you in the moment you know it might have or i might just like looking back realize oh i was putting too much emphasis on that Mm -hmm. i wasn't that excited about that you know like and so i'll re-record the story and then i'll switch it out of the pocket i'm like francis ford coppola you know i'll go back like two years ago and maybe no one will notice but as long as you're not george lucasing it (laughs) right You do. I mean, you do for various reasons end up having to tell the same story over and over again. You know, you notice that the the story that you told in the the introduction of the book is something that you've definitely told a story before. As you said, you know, the coming out story is something you're going to revisit. Do you find that you're able to discover new things about yourself every single time? That was exactly why working on this story that I did for Amazon, where they're like, hey, can you take this 10 minute story and turn it into an hour long story? That's why I was so, in the end, kind of thrilled by it, because I realized, wow, there is still stuff here, and I am still, and just talking to my therapist about it yesterday, realizing, wow, I am still unpacking shit from this. And one of the things we talked about was this, this whole thing where I was like, 
I'm worried that some of this is now mythology, that some of this is now, oh, I've told it so many times mm -hmm. that the story is more real than whatever the fuck actually yeah. happened to me. So I think that's interesting to like be in that uncomfortable place of being like, wait, 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 wait. Am I being completely honest, even though I've told this story a, a million times? One of my most well-known stories is the first story I ever shared on Risk. And it's the it's the story I tell if we're bringing Risk to that town for the first time. Because it's such a great icebreaker. Yeah. It's a very funny story about how when I was like 18 years old, I went to a sex club for the first time and went back home with the guy. And the guy made me tie my shoes to my This balls. was in the book, yeah. Yes, yeah. And I was kind of baffled and bewildered and had never really learned about uh, BDSM or anything like that. So I was like, what, what is going on? So it's a comedy of errors, sort of. And <laughs> I had been telling that story for about four years, you know, just on a regular basis, like one of my classics in the drawer, you know. And I was walking down the street one day when I it occurred to me, wait a minute, the guy I went home from the sex club with that night was a different guy than the guy who made me tie my shoes. I've taken two different guys. It ended up in the book like from that, two, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I still tell the story yeah. the same way because it's like, oh, fuck it. I mean, who can keep track of how many guys I've taken home from sex clubs? But but ultimately, <laughs> you defer. You, you... <laughs> ultimately, you defer to the fact that it, it's a better story yeah. that, that wins out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a comedy. That story yeah. is. It does button up nicely, too, at the end. It's almost like a, you know, comedic stories yeah. have a slightly different, I think, have slightly different roles. And you're, you're not you're not going to unpack a ton about me from that story. You know, I mean, obviously, there obviously there's some stuff there, but it's not like so soul bearing that it's yeah. like desperately important that I get everything right. So it's like, okay, yeah, I used to go home with guys from sex clubs on a pretty regular basis. And yeah, these were two different guys, but hell, they were both crazy in similar ways. So what the fuck? <laughs> it's slightly depressing to, to think about, you know, like that we're going to spend our entire lives unpacking these things. And maybe right before we, ha we pack it in, we'll have figured it all out. Well, you know, I think that if you look at a lot of artists, like if you there's a movie called Vincent about mm. uh, Vincent Van Gogh. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's his letters. Yeah to his brother, brother yeah. and then you're hearing yeah. John Hurt read them and seeing the paintings. You hear his total obsessiveness about this need to keep painting sunflowers or whatever it might be. And and it's because there's a ah oh, man, I don't know. I'm just drawn to this thing. I have something about this thing. I need to keep exploring it. Or like say Scorsese and his, you know, violent Italian American mobster esque movies. Obviously, there's aspects of his own background and complexes and psychology that kind of is wanting to keep exploring that terrain. So I think that that's similar with us when we tell our own personal stories is that what's interesting is occasionally going against the grain. Like I remember the first time I shared, I shared a story once called Man at Hawaii. It's on an episode of Risk called The God Problem. And I take you back in the story to when I was 17 years old, and I was very devoutly Catholic. What's interesting about the story is I made a decision not to preface it with anything like, I'm no longer Catholic, or to say that at the end either. I was like, 
No, no. I'm going to take you back into my being a totally, mm. totally devout Catholic and just let it sit there the whole story. And I'll never forget when I first told this story in front of an audience at a risk show, they were like, the fuck is going on? Like, they were so used to Kevin telling his yeah. kinky stories. I mean, they knew <laughs> contextually that you weren't still a devout Catholic. I think they did. I think they did. But they were just uncomfortable that I was talking about this, like, you know, how how much I love God. and you That's know, a how great important. irony. You've circled completely around to the point where a story about tying, you know, shoes to your balls doesn't upset them but you talking about being a catholic well i think that's exactly the thing is that people like to pigeonhole you yeah. and so you ask like are there still risks you can take I, there there's always something new to reveal there's always something like well people have never heard about this part of my experience or beliefs or feelings is honesty though in this complete transparency do you feel like it's it's to fault always the best policy i mean like i hate to say it but like sometimes we put up these defenses to to protect ourselves oh absolutely like there's a story i've wanted to tell for <laughs> since 2013 and my therapist and i are always going back and forth about how let's wait another decade on that one you know what i mean like there are you do need distance you need distance and you really need to figure out will this serve people will this serve me you know it's yeah. those are the two concerns of Will people really be able to hear this and get something out of it? And will this hurt me because, you know, I'm revealing something that people could use against me? And, in, in, you know, like, for example, like Dan Savage has been on Risk several times and he is an amazing storyteller. He's a real natural. He, he doesn't seem like somebody who holds a lot back. No, no. However, we talk before and after he tells his stories on Risk about, Maybe we should not include this because the Christian right people are always looking into what I'm talking about and they might pick up on the wording yeah. of that and try to, you know, turn it into this or that. So, yeah, I mean, you do have to be conscious of, hey, uh, I, I, I'm not hurting myself. Oh, and the third. The third is, am I hurting anyone else yeah. who was mentioned in the story? The people who put the kibosh on risk stories more often than Spouses. any. Spouses. Uh, family. Family. Just, yeah. fa just moms, yeah. dads, spouses. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel that in the course of your having done this and all the stories that you've told over the years that you've stepped a little too far into something? That's an interesting question. I don't think I have yet, but. Yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But I do have a really interesting thing in that my parents kind of have an agreement with me. They're both still around? My parents are both still alive. They're, uh, you know, in their mid-70s. Yeah. Uh, or, I mean, my dad is 80 now. My mom's, yeah, no, actually, my mom's approaching 80, too. And they've accepted a certain amount of things about you. <laughs> yeah, they've accepted a certain, like, they don't know that I, they know I'm gay. Yeah. They don't know that I'm kinky, and I don't know if they'd even know what that they means. They don't listen to your exactly. podcast. No, they, it, yeah. they, well, they don't have access to, well, the, you know, they're not good with the internet. They don't know how to get email even. So, so they've never heard a podcast. I played them some stories from risk. Like, for example, that story yeah. I just told you where I'm a Catholic at yeah. 17 years old. I played that from, and they're like, oh, this is wonderful. You're, you're, no <laughs> Knowing that they're not going to have access to these things, that they're not going to be listening to the show, has that given you a lot more freedom? A lot. I mean, you know, like I said, we were talking before, I think I mentioned that 
the voice in my head, the inner critic, the yeah. what are they the super ego voice in my head that kind of beats me up a lot. I kind of tend to think of that archetypically as being mom voice, right? And it's kind of unfair to the living, breathing person because you know my real mom is actually a lot is a sweetheart, but you know I've got a lot of shame that I associate with her from my childhood and everything. So it's my mom voice in my head. And literally when I started Risk, a thought in my head was, well, I'm about to turn 40 and I am tired of censoring myself to serve my mom. So this whole show is going to be, I'm finally coming out about everything and this is a big fuck you to the mom voice in my head. That's crazy though. Like even when you were again, just getting up in front of a, a crowd at, at UCB, you were censoring yourself because of because of your mom well yeah i think that it's knowing that she there's no chance she would ever see that in a million years yeah oh god yeah well a lot of people talk about that in their stories about how a mother or a father or some figure like that that was hugely influential on them when they were growing up will be dead and they'll still have to like have arguments with that person but another thing is i have four brothers and sisters and Mm. what's kind of intriguing to me is that they seem to deliberately avoid listening to risk. I mean, maybe I'm interpreting, maybe my ego is too big. Maybe they're just like not interested. Yep. But I think more likely. They're, they're moth people. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Kevin, this is a moth family. <laughs> I think that they think. That's great that Kevin is yeah. succeeding, uh, but we see some of the shit that he tweets and some of his Facebook stuff, and we see how just how yeah. graphic his yeah. show can be, and we're not sure we want to know everything about yeah. him. David Sedaris has talked about that, mm. about how different members of his family have different levels of okayness with, with his I writing. I assume Amy about is family. pretty okay with everything. Yeah, exactly. Amy, oh. like, you know, shoot the shit. But there's one of his sisters and one that he's especially close to and, like, has a big influence on him. He's like, okay, I've, I've accepted. I cannot write about her and she doesn't want to read my shit. So that's just persona non grata. So it's interesting that some people, like, I called my parents and told them a couple weeks ago because they were like oh we're so excited about the book because they're book lovers they love books but i called and said look i really don't think you should get this book i mean they know i've told them many 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 times risk is very r-rated etc etc r-rated is nice yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting legitimacy like your parents have no way of contextualizing what a podcast is right exactly um so, so, but to my surprise, they immediately agreed. They were like, oh, okay, okay, so we should not read the book. Yeah. And I was thrilled by that. It's kind of interesting. I think that parents, a lot of parents have, you know, some have none of this at all, but some have a real ability to be like, oh, okay, we should be in denial and, you know, stay in the clouds and not know about But you want them to this. be proud of what you do. Oh, they are. They are very proud of what I do. But here's the closest that we came to, a, to blows about this. Well, I should set this up by saying when I was on MTV in the early 90s, the state was on every week on MTV. And every time a new episode of The State was on TV, I would have to have an hour-long conversation with my mom the next day about how, oh, my God, 
do you have to make references to sex in your joke? How can you possibly have made a joke about Jesus? You know, like on and on and on. This is the one man show that I want from you. Is conver- <laughs> my, conversations my with mom. my mother about my MTV show. That would be amazing. So, oh God, I'll never forget. Like I got so dramatic. At one point I was like, do you know that John Lennon and his aunt would have, you know, conversations and, and Mozart and his dad, you know, like, you know, pulling out like the greatest of the greats and their difficult relationships with their uh, guardians. Um, the, the Mozart, Lennon, Allison <laughs> triad. <laughs> Exactly. But no, it's true. Like everyone has to deal with, oh God, what are the parents going to say about this? So yeah, they really had a, and, and when you think about it, the state was not like the most like, you know, X-rated pushing the envelope. Yeah. She was very uncomfortable with a lot of what was happening there. So, and she, and I I described how I did that solo show called F up. She was very uncomfortable with the fact that that the word fuck was suggested in the title. So by the time Risk came out, I was like, I'm just so tired of having the same arguments over and over with them. What happened was Risk was coming somewhere near enough to Cincinnati, Ohio. It was like Cleveland or something like that, or or maybe even Chicago, near enough. That someone who knew my parents saw an article in a paper about risk. And in the article, it mentioned, oh, Kevin Allison once tied his shoes to his butt. Like, it listed a few things uh, (laughs) that were in crazy stories of mine. And this person shared this with my mom. I think just, I don't know if they shared the actual article or, or just talking about it with her. And I remember, you know, I almost lost my mind at that point, but I thought, here's what my plan is. I wrote out a little script. And the little script was all about how this man whose 18-year-old son was hooked on heroin wrote to us and said, my relationship with my son was dead until I sat down with him and played an episode of Risk that was all about drugs and we were finally able to start having a conversation Mm. again. Or... You know, a couple who wrote in that Risk saved their marriage because they started, you know, actually being honest about, like, sexual issues that they were having because they heard some stories about that kind of stuff. People who have written to us who said they were suicidal and then they heard someone's story and were like, Jesus Christ, okay, I guess I don't have it that bad. Or, oh, I guess I'm not such a freak after all, that kind of thing. We get those emails all the time. And so that's what I was telling my parents about. And they were so proud. You know, they've been thrilled about that. And we do a lot of that kind of work. Not all of it comes to fruition, but we talk to prisons about, could we speak to some of the prisoners and get their stories? We were just talking to this woman the other day who works with children who have been traumatized and helping them to share their stories as to make a little bit of sense out of what they've been through. We know that there is enormous, like you were saying, there is something really therapeutic about working on narratives with people. And I always tell storytellers on risk. At first, it seems like you're taking a verbal selfie. At first, it seems like, oh, here, I get to talk about myself for 15 minutes, yada, yada. But what really strikes you is that after you've shared your story or even while you're sharing your story, you can see that it's resonating with some people and you cannot predict how it's going to affect some people. Like I've told stories about, um, you know, for example, like, you know, going to a kink camp and having a bunch of men pee on me and then people write into me 
wow, I'm not interested in water sports at all. <laughs> but the emotions you described mm. about your social anxiety yeah. and how what your idea of consent was kept shifting from second to second. Like, oh, my God, that totally triggered something for me, you know. And it'll be, it won't even be sexual. It'll be like, holy shit, that took me back to this conversation I had with my brother when I was in the seventh grade. You know, it's, it's very unpredictable. So a lot of the storytelling experience is what it opens up in your listeners. And that's a part of it that's very hard to quantify. Is there a sense though that, you know, your, your parents get to a certain age that like our relationship isn't really going to evolve from here. <laughs> They're not really going to change. Oh my God. God, yes. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you another thing. Once every four or five years, I would mention smoking pot to my to my mom. <laughs> you know, in high school, in college, in my early 20s. And I don't know, sometime in my 30s, I did it for the fifth time, mentioned my pot smoking, and it was like, you smoke pot? I was like, I have come out to you about this five times now. You know, yeah. where, where you're just like, okay... They don't want to know you smoke pot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like. Maybe I'm the one that needs to change to some degree. Well, you know, I mean, I they definitely remember that yeah. I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> These conversations that you have with people of, you know, different viewpoints who, again, as you said, oh, I don't necessarily, that's not my lifestyle. Uh, that's not a thing that I enjoy, but um, I've been able to relate to that on some like visceral or emotional yeah. level. Given everything that's happening in the world, given the fact that things seem so much more divided than than ever before, and this all seems insurmountable and, and hopeless. I All my friends on Facebook all the time are just like, it's not worth having these conversations anymore. Yeah. Let's just like focus on our own thing. Does it give you a, a, a sliver of hope that maybe things can get better well it's a mixed bag because just last night and jc my producer jc sees all the emails that i write from kevin at ristashow.com because she's the business director and she saw that last night i responded to a, a trump person yeah. who emailed in and i did not do it very graciously yeah it's such a mixed bag you know for we we've had a lot of trump supporters not a lot, but people have definitely written in and said, I don't appreciate that you talk about politics. I love your show, but I don't appreciate you talking Isn't about Isn't that politics. strange that somebody can enjoy all of those aspects of your show and still Espec like vote for Trump? Like, like, like it, this last, last night, the email I, that I got yeah. was, how dare you say what you were saying about kids in cages? There's two sides to every story. And I'm just li li reading this and I'm like, yeah, no, no, dude. And then the guy said, I love your show, but you've lost a listener. Yeah. And I thought, dude, our show is all about compassion and empathy. You know, like like people are like, are there any stories you don't run? Yeah. And I said, sure. The ones where it feels like the storyteller is saying, oh, my ex-wife is such a bitch or, oh, my God, I hate my stepfather or something like that, where it, does, where it feels like, oh, OK. But but your first impulse when somebody says something like that to you must be good riddance, right? Yeah, yeah, a absolutely. I, I, I felt like, you know, I don't mind that I'm losing a listener. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like if you can listen to the show and hear so like. We have so many experiences on the show from people of color or people who grew up in poverty or, you know, people who grew up LGBT or whatever it might be. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. but, but uh, so conversely, conversely to that, 
we get a lot of emails from people, and this is the heartwarming part, where people say, wow, I was a much more narrow-minded person before mm. I started listening to this show. We get a, we get many, many, many more of those than we do from, I, you've lost a listener because of what you said about this or that. People write in and they'll say, whoa, I never thought that I could listen to a story about a man eating another man's shit. <laughs> you almost stopped like... the sentence there. <laughs> and However. Like, and feel moved. What is so surprising to people is that you can listen to a story about someone doing something you would never in a million years do. And, you know, for me, that might be going off to war or um i don't know what there's a lot of things people talk about on the show where i'm like well i would never do that but if the person is sharing it with as much honesty as they can about what they were really feeling you know especially if they had mixed feelings especially if they were like i don't know if i should be doing this oh okay well here i'm doing it and, and they can kind of walk you through that you as the listener almost can't help but start to be like okay i i wouldn't do that mm. but i can empathize it was interesting i did a tweet today there were two you know how twitter gives you a review of the of things people are tweeting mm -hmm. And there, sometimes there's two right next to each other that are absurdly ironic. Yeah. And one was Corey Lewandowski, the president's former yeah. campaign manager. Womp, whatever. Womp. Yeah, saying womp womp about a 10-year-old girl with Down syndrome yeah. who was taken from her family. And the other was Rachel Maddow crying, uh, you know, uh, inadvertently losing it on the air, reading about a case like that. So these two things were right next to each other. And I made a screenshot of it and tweeted out, this is the thing. This is the split right now. It's people who are focused on power and kind of run on fear and loathing and people who are focused on people and who have empathy that that's what to me kind of feels mm. like the split although i guess someone on the other side would not define it sure. that way but that's what it looks like from nobody here nobody thinks they're evil right exactly exactly it is a little baffling to have people write in i'm a trump supporter and i love your show where people are talking about <laughs> you know, like people are talking about things like yeah. crossing the border illegally and uh, i i i don't know it, yeah uh, to me what risk is really about is in, I want to be engendering compassion and empathy. Hopeful in that, you know, maybe in spite of all of these things, we can still continue to have these conversations. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes, 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 yes. Another thing is, you know, the times that I've been most political on the show are after Charlottesville, after the election. Yeah. And just now with the kids in cages thing. After the election, I did this monologue at the top of the show. I mean, you know, can you can you remember that? Like the couple of days after the election when it was just like, you know. Oh, walking around Manhattan. People yeah, like you're just hit by days, a car yeah. or something. Yeah. So I had to record a new episode a, a couple of days after that had happened. And I give this monologue. And one of the things that I said in it was that we in the left really should be conscious about trying to call people in rather than call people mm. out that we should try to 
I don't want to be tone policing, but that we should try to put a positive spin on things rather than a hysterical strident spin on things. But I'll tell you, sometimes it's just goddamn hard because you've got people like Tucker Carlson himself on TV just last night saying, oh, if you accuse people of being Nazis, then they're liable to be Nazier, you know, and it's like, yeah, sometimes you have to call something what it is. I don't know. I, I really don't know that not calling racism racism is going to help. We're going through a time. We are going through a time. I hope we come out the other end. And I hope that something like risk this week on the show, we have David Crabb sharing an hour long story. He was just absolutely head over heels in love with his dog. This little, you know, it was he had always wanted a dog. And this was his first dog that he had gotten as an adult, you know, rather than as a kid with the family. He just loved this dog. And then the dog, you know, started having all sorts of yeah. medical problems and and. They went through hell. They were paying out the nose to try to fix everything, and the, and the dog passed away. This is an incredibly emotionally raw story because it had only happened a couple weeks prior, and he was still grieving. So it's really, you can, I mean, he's crying at a lot of times during the story. And it was weird because I put it out this week, and I thought, this feels right to be putting out right now. It's emotionally raw. It's about a defenseless creature it's about love and grief and just like expressing it all and there's just something i think that's cathartic about that the same is true of some of these like kinky stories like sometimes i feel like some of these kinky stories you know now that we're seeing you know more of a backlash against lgbt people in this era it feels like Oh, no, this is more necessary than ever to, like, be telling all the truth about this kind of stuff. So I think that there is some it's hard to put your finger on, but I think that there is something radical and defiant and necessary about continuing to tell the truth in a very compassionate way in a world that is screaming and yelling, you know, talking points at each other, to be putting something out there where it's like, okay, here's, we'll let a person talk for 20 minutes about how they really and truly feel about something they experienced. I don't know. To me, it just seems important right now. There you go. That was Kevin Allison, whose new book, Risk, The True Stories, People Never Thought They Dare to Share, is out now on Hachette. Recommend you pick that up and recommend you check out the podcast on which the book is based. You can find that at risk-show.com. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Very fun conversation. I laughed throughout the editing process, which is a, a pretty rare thing for me. Thanks to Sheila for helping set that up. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the show. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes or Google Podcast or wherever you happen to listen to the show. Like us on Facebook. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. And that's about all for this week. So stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL. 